Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Good morning, everyone. As you're coming in and finding your seat, I have a couple of announcements for you. First of all, I just want to say thank you to everyone who came out for our Lent worship night on Monday. It was a really encouraging night, and we did record it, and I sent the link to all of your leaders if you would like to, to watch the, the recording. Um, somebody reminded me this morning that it takes a while to get started, so don't give up on it. Like fast forward it about a minute or two um, before it starts. And... <clears throat> And I think you'll be really, really blessed by the testimonies that were shared at that night. Um, Second thing is we're continuing to collect those $5 um, coffee gift cards for our Foster Love Appreciation Week. And we will will, uh, collect them again next week as well. I said the month of February. Yeah, Katie's the cheerleader. Uh, (laughs) All right. Final thing is our next event coming up that might be fun for your tables to come to together is we have a concert coming up here on March 31st over in the main building, Matt Marr and Mission House. And Courtney and I were just talking about Mission House being the girls that sang that song that we sang, um, All Sufficient Merit, right? No? Oh, the song you're using. Oh, I thought it was those two girls. Okay, anyway, we're going to sing a song by them. (laughs) Uh, So this is going to be a really great concert. It's also the uh, the first night of the garage sale. So, I mean, this, what better girls' night? Come out and shop, and then walk across the parking lot and go to our concert on March 31st, Matt Marr and Mission House. All right, that is it for announcements. We, pardon? What? Oh, you. <laughs> I thought somebody was asking me a question. Okay, this is really going well this morning. <laughs> All right, I'm going to take us out of our misery. We are, going to, we are going to wait and worship at the end of our time together today. We are so blessed to have Courtney back with us today, so I'm going to invite Courtney up. We're going to pray for her. Oh, wow, everybody's excited about this. <laughs> so let's, let's pray for Courtney, and then we will get into the lesson. Oh, God, we are so humbled to be in your presence today. Thank you for being so good and faithful and kind to us. Thank you for what you have taught us in Romans 6 this week as we have studied. Thank you for speaking to us as we've gathered together and talked to sisters and friends. And now, God, would you use Courtney, would you help her to be your mouthpiece to speak to us? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you would have us to, to know and to really live into and believe from this chapter in your word? We just thank you, God, for being faithful to us in every way. And we trust you together. In Jesus' name, amen. Can y'all hear me okay? Because we have it like sealed with a Band-Aid and the Band-Aid just popped off. So <laughs> how are y'all doing? There's a lot more people in here than the first time I spoke. So kind of a little nerve-wracking. So it's, I have to say it is very surreal standing here today and talking about Romans 6. Um, It's still hard to read this chapter and not be transported back to 1996. I was 20 years old, and believe it or not, I had never flown on a plane. I was going to fly to Maryland with my grandmother to visit her cousin Wayne 
and then we were going to watch their house while they traveled in South America. He had been a former U.S. diplomat to Cuba, and he and his wife had this beautiful home right on the Potomac River, and he even took me out sailing before they left for South America. And once they left, it was just my grandmother and I, and I ended up spending large amounts of time alone, going on long walks around the area, laying out by the pool, reading and journaling. And while this sounds like a sweet and sentimental time with my grandmother, my first trip on a plane to the East Coast, this was actually a very dark and destructive time of my life. And all of it was being hidden from my family. So one day I was out by the pool reading a book I'd gotten out of the bookcase at their house. Wayne and his wife were not believers, and it was about as new age and drug-infused as a book can get. So there's no sincere seeking of the Lord going on in my life. So I got, it up, got up, started towards the house, and suddenly it was like this weight of conviction and the presence of God just was simply there. So much so that I had to sit back down on the pool chair. And there was just this very simple permeating thought in my mind, and it was so simple. My friends are not my true friends, and this is not the life God had for me. So after this trip, I went back to my parents' house for a brief time before I went back to college. And I still have this experience kind of rattling around in my head. So I go to another bookcase, my mother's, and I pick up two books. One was an extra Bible she had laying around, and the other was this one, The Search for Significance. I had no idea what to read in the Bible. I didn't even tell my parents I was doing this. I went back into my childhood room. I'm sitting on my little white twin day bed surrounded by floral curtains, and I start reading the book of Romans. I knew nothing of Romans. I have no idea why this is a book that I turn to. I'll be honest, I didn't really understand much of it. But then I got to Romans 6.20. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. And this was a part that got me. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. And then this, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it was like, the truth of these verses were screaming at me off the page. This I got. This I knew. It was my sinful life laid bare in this ancient book. And I remember quietly saying out loud in my room, I didn't even know the Bible said this kind of stuff. And so I took the Bible back to college, and by my mind, I had determined that I was going to get my life together. I wasn't going to do this anymore, and I wasn't going to do that anymore. And I was even announcing these fleshly decorations to my friends. But one problem was this. I saw God as someone who had kind of sent me this big to-do list in this, from the sky, and it was up to me to fulfill it. There was no turning to God in humility and brokenness. And so because of this, it took less than a week for my plan to come crashing down around me. I fell back into everything I had been doing and then some. And my Bible that had been sitting on the window ledge next to my bed was now slipped with a book under my bed. Providentially, I had started working for a Christian lady who owned a restaurant and coffee house in the downtown Denton Square. 
And every year around the holidays, she held a Christmas party at her house for the whole staff. And one of the guys that worked there had written a song that he played, and the verses sounded as if they'd been taken straight out of that same chapter in Romans. And I sat there, same weight of conviction returned, but this time I felt trapped. I truly doubted I could be free. So I drove the person that had carpooled with me home. I'll never forget the rest of that drive. I was completely silent while the burden of my sin grew heavier and heavier the closer I got to my town home. I got in the door, half walked, half crawled up the stairs to my bedroom. My roommate was gone. I knelt on the floor in my bedroom and repented of everything and surrendered my life to Jesus. So I'm very excited to be up here discussing this chapter today. So the layout of this section is this. Paul's going to make a bold pronouncement about salvation by grace alone. And then we can almost see the gears in Paul's mind turning, like he's anticipating people are going to twist God's grace for their own selfish purposes. And then he assumes the role of devil's advocate and begins lobbing questions at his own statement. So the first statement Paul makes is back in 520, where he says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then he turns on his statement and asks this, well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in, gra- in sin so that grace may abound? Because he's assuming the Gentiles are thinking, well, if this is a great arrangement, if my sin brings God's grace into greater focus, well, then let's sin all the more. But Paul also knew his Jewish opponents, and he knew that they weren't looking for an excuse to sin. They actually thought the opposite. They thought Paul had the gospel all wrong because his statement sounded to encourage people to keep sinning. So Paul responds to both distortions with one simple statement, by no means. Now, I love the different Bible translations of this response. May it never be. Of course not. God forbid. And my personal favorite is the Phillips translation. What a ghastly thought. (laughs) Not a great one. It's pretty obvious that Paul wants to remove any thought from our minds that grace encourages sin. But now that we are saved by grace, what should our attitude be towards sin? How does the gospel impact how we view our sin? Well, first, we died to it. In Romans 3, the big picture message was we were dead in our sins before we became believers. We needed someone outside of ourselves to save us. But now in Romans 6, we find when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we are now dead to sin. And it's because of this new reality that Paul is able to challenge us in verse 2. How can we still live in it? You don't live in something you died to. Our attitude towards sin, how we engage it in our lives, should look radically different. So we can't justify living in it like we used to. It's not something that we continue to habitually practice without conviction. Are we still going to sin and struggle with it? Absolutely. But now we grieve our sin. Something new is at work in us that makes us not want to remain in it like we once did. Now, this process is ongoing, it's progressive, 
And it's a progressive work of maturity and conformity in a believer's life. This is not always instantaneous. So if you're like me, and you know how you can sin at times still, and what that looks like, this can be hard for us to trust. Like, okay, God, I mean, that sounds nice and all, but how can I really trust that this is true for me? I mean, I see myself in the way that I still mess up. I sure don't feel dead to sin. Maybe I'm the one person out there where this dead to sin business didn't quite stick good enough. Well, we must understand that we actually underwent a process that helps put our minds and our hearts at ease. We were baptized with him. We were buried with him. We died and resurrected with him. We were crucified with him. We will one day live with him. The key word being expressed here is with him. We now have this beautiful and mysterious process of being united with Jesus in the work that he did for us. Now, the word for this is a botanical term, meaning grown together. The image here is of a branch being bound together until it becomes grafted together. Our identification with the work of Jesus is so significant that we have been grafted to his life, and this has immense implications for our own lives. We can walk in newness of life. We're no longer enslaved to sin, and the dominion of sin no longer rules us. Well, what does this mean? Well, the importance in understanding our union with Christ is this. If we are united to Jesus, and he did not serve sin, then neither should we serve it or allow it to be Lord over us. In verse 6, it says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, the body of sin means the rule of sin has been broken or brought to nothing in our lives. This doesn't mean we will never sin. It means we now have the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to it. We're no longer bound to continue in the cycle of it. I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton. A dead thing goes with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Now, there's three key words in this section. Know, consider, and present. We just discussed what we are to know. We are dead to sin. We have been given this new life. And then we get to verse 11, which says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, what this means is that we don't just know the truth of being dead to sin and then kind of move on. We are to consider or think about our new position in Jesus. The present tense of the verb could make it read like this. Keep on counting yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Why do we do this? Well, this is prevention theology. Reflecting on this new identity in Christ actually keeps us from walking in sin. And so the next key word is present. In verse 13, it says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, there's a very clear negative command. Do not present yourselves to sin. 
But there's also a positive command as well. Do present yourselves to God for righteousness. And God is going to call us to stop presenting our lives to sin in ways that we have. But we don't stop there. Our lives as believers aren't just shaped by what we no longer do. But God calls us to walk in newness of life where we present our lives to Jesus. Walking in newness of life implies action. Other places in the New Testament refer to this new life as something that we put on. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I hate to iron. And so many times I only wear a third of the clothes I actually own simply because of this one chore that stands between me and my new shirt. I'll get a new shirt, I'll wash it, and then I will sit on a hanger in my utility room forever simply because I won't iron it. And this is how many of us treat our identity in Christ. We've been given this new identity. It belongs to us, but we don't get the benefit of it if we don't wear it. And I think a story that really describes this well is a conversation I had with my friend recently. I did get her permission to share this. She has a past of bulimia, and whenever she felt the inner chaos of her emotions swirl out of control, binging and purging became a tool that she would use to feel a sense of control and power over those emotions. And so I asked her recently, you know, how's, how's that going in your life, this, this struggle? And she was describing this pastor that had really helped her understand what change looks like. And he he said this, imagine you live in a house and every day when you leave for work, you head home and you get so used to going home that way, you can just do it mindlessly without thinking about it. But then one day you move and every time you come to the stop sign where you would normally turn right to go home, you have to tell yourself at that stop sign, I don't live there anymore. That's not the way I get home. I turn left now. And she said that whenever the urge to use food to cope with her emotional pain would creep in, she'd have to tell herself, I live somewhere different now. That's not the right turn to take. So in verse 14, Paul makes his second statement. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. And then he fires back, a question to his own statement, anticipating his audience's reaction. Well, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And again, Paul gives an emphatic, by no means. And then he says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Because he's wanting to attack the idea that, hey, sin really isn't that big of a deal. I mean, we all mess up. God is gracious, right? But Paul is saying, hold on a second, because you obey what you love, and you serve what you love. And if you use God's grace to say that sin isn't a big deal, you're placing yourself back under the slavery Jesus freed you from. And that slavery will destroy your full enjoyment of Jesus. Paul is responding to what we now call cheap grace. And in the cost of discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. 
It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's freedom from guilt without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And on the flip side, Bonhoeffer says, costly grace calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. And it is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. And so in February of 2020, I went to a Christian counseling conference in Austin. Literally, COVID happened right after that. And the speaker spoke highly of a book by the pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones called Spiritual Depression. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones was a doctor and a pastor in England at Westminster Chapel in the 1960s. And he wanted to address the idea of spiritual depression. So each week he took scripture and he applied it to this topic in a series of sermons, which was later turned into the book. And I started reading this book right when everything shut down. I'm so thankful for the timing of it. This book was a huge blessing for me. I mean, I have underlined the snot out of it. <laughs> and it's also been something that I really refer to a lot in my work. So I'm really excited to share some of the excerpts of this book with you today regarding the verse, uh, Romans 6, 17. So I hope it blesses you as well. So we read in verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So this verse is stressing the importance of wholeness and balance in the Christian life. Our lives have become obedient, that's the will, from the heart, which is the emotion, to the standard of teaching or the mind. So we see here in this verse, God saves us wholly, mind, heart, and will. And problems begin to occur in our life when we don't see the greatness of the gospel and we become imbalanced in these areas. So let's look at what can happen when we don't move forward in wholeness, okay? Now, if we simply engage our heads in the gospel message, we will be interested in Christianity as a philosophy or purely as intellectual insight. Head-only people can be those who love theology and doctrine. They enjoy discussing and arguing these matters with people. But the danger is that the gospel simply becomes an intellectual hobby to them. This can lead to the absence of grace and kindness. This is a person who people go to for Bible knowledge, but they're very hard to approach in matters that require gentle understanding and sympathy. And so the gospel becomes restricted to their studies, but it doesn't actually impact how they live and treat people. And so the devastating end to this person can be that when they encounter hardship or sickness at the end of their life, the gospel they've spent so much time defending is of no comfort or peace to them because it failed to take root in their heart. And this ultimately leads to bitterness and cynicism and great loneliness. And the second person is presented with the gospel message, and maybe they have this emotional experience or encounter with God. Maybe they have certain struggles 
or a certain past of sin, and they hear the gospel presented to them, and they feel like they've had some sort of breakthrough from these issues, and like a pressure valve inside of them is released. And because that is all they were looking for, they get that release, and they stop there. This person can be someone who's naturally drawn to the mystical. They like sharing these spiritual experiences with others. And and so their relationship with Jesus gets relegated to living from one emotional high or mystical experience to the next. And the danger for this person is they don't want Jesus. They don't want to know him or serve him. They just want his comfort. They want to feel better. And once they get that, away they go, only to return to God when the next emotional hurdle appears. And so they never see the need to apply God's truth to their mind and will. And so their faith is lopsided, and this can lead to spiritual depression. And the last person is one who has been convinced or persuaded to kind of try Christianity out. Maybe someone they respect as a Christian, they look at it as a pretty good way to live. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, these are the people who decide to take up Christianity instead of being taken up by Christianity. They've never known the feeling of being unable to resist the pull of the gospel once they are presented with the truth. It's simply kind of this decision of the will, and they may not even know why they've decided this. They might be dutiful, but eventually questions are going to arise in them that they don't have answers for. And this is something, as I was reading this, I was like, this is something that can be very tempting for us to do to our children. We kind of call upon them to decide, but we've pressured them to decide by putting pressure on their will, many times to calm our own fears. And I think it's very important to teach kids the gospel, our kids, but it's also equally important to allow the Holy Spirit room to work on them, because remember, it is the Lord that saves our children, not us. So what do we do with all this? You might be marking off the people in your life and deciding where they are on this list, or you might be reeling in your seat, worrying if you really know Jesus. Well, I think it's important that we understand there is an order to this process. We are first presented with the truth or the standard of teaching. Everything hinges on that. God's truth first invades our minds and understanding. The Holy Spirit enlightens our minds and we receive this truth. And our hearts are then moved. We love this truth. We desire it. We begin to hate our sin, hate the life we've been living, and we see the slavery that we've been in. And then we find our desires changing. We want to serve God. We want to live for him. We yield our wills to him. This is a life we are called to as Christians. It takes us up and transforms our entire being, mind, heart, and will. So I just want to encourage you right now, because I've been lopsided in every one of these areas, and a year from now, God's probably going to reveal to me other, er- other ways that I've been lopsided in these areas. But I just want to remind 
all of us this morning, God is faithful and it is his grace that holds us fast. I always have to remind myself of Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. But just think of that. The starting point for our faith is knowing it is God who began this good work to begin with. He set it in motion, and he's going to finish it. A day is coming where the work in us will be complete, no matter who you were. It doesn't matter how prideful, arrogant, self-reliant you were. If you had a needle in your arm on skid row, wherever you start your walk with Christ, our growth stands on what he has done, he is doing, and will one day finish. Thank you very much. We've got a song to play. Surface 
you glory and honor and praise that you have won the victory over sin god thank you that it no longer has power or dominion over us we claim that victory through your spirit today as your children as your daughters god we thank you for it we we are so excited that we get to follow you by your spirit 
So would you help us as we leave this place, as we go to the next opportunity we have to talk to someone or encounter people in this, in this world, would you use us for your glory? God, we 